Brethren, as the Passover approaches, and as we examine ourselves in more detail, it's critical to understand certain concepts. And one of those is the concept, the idea, the reality of human nature and how it impacts us and can impact us. Brethren, what is your human nature? Where did it come from? Is it something you were born with? Is it something you developed after you were born? Is it something that is just a part of you and that can be blamed when something goes wrong? Oh, that was just my human nature. Is it something to be repented of? Brethren, how well can you explain human nature in regard to the Bible? What I'd like to do in the message today is to review what human nature is and what it is not. And this is a topic, brethren, that we need to understand or we can be deceived into allowing certain traits into our character that are not only anti-God, but really are from Satan. If you're looking for a title to today's message, I've entitled it simply, What is Human Nature? Several weeks ago, Mr. Wallace Smith gave a sermon here entitled, The Challenges and Blessings of Self-Honesty. And one of the quotable quotes for me that came out of that sermon was, he made the observation, our natural state is to be ignorant of our real state. Our natural state is to be ignorant of our real state. And that really can apply when we think about human nature. Are we aware? How aware are we of our real state? Brethren, where do our ideas come from with regard to human nature? Do you know where your ideas come from? To find out, we need to go back to the source of the teaching about human nature, and that's the Catholic Church. So I'm going to quote from you a little bit about uh, concepts and ideas related to human nature. In fact, we're going to begin by talking about original sin. We're going to define a few concepts here that are critical to understanding where the ideas of human nature have come from in society today. So we're going to look at original sin to begin with. What is original sin? I'm going to quote from an article on original sin in the Catholic Encyclopedia. Those of you who've come out of a Catholic background, uh, this may bring some things to recollection. And in fact, you don't have to come out of a Catholic background to understand some of these concepts because the Catholic daughters, many of them, the Protestant church, have taken on these ideals and teachings as well. So, quoting from the Catholic Encyclopedia on original sin, original sin may be taken to mean, number one, the sin that Adam committed, And number two, a consequence of this first sin, the hereditary stain with which we are born on account of our original descent from Adam. Let me continue. St. Augustine made the statement, the deliberate sin of the first man, Adam, is the cause of original sin. And then the Catholic Encyclopedia continues, Since Adam transmits death to his children by way of generation, when he begets them mortal, it is by generation also 
He transmits sin to them. You understanding what's being talked about here? The idea is that Adam's original sin and the consequences of that sin, what are the consequences of sin? What does 1 John 3, 4 say? The wages of sin are death. What the Catholic Church is saying is that original sin that Adam and Eve committed has been passed down over the generations, in a sense, through biology to children and to their children and to their children. So we're responsible for the penalty of and obligated to the penalty of the sins of Adam because it's been passed down from generation to generation. One final part of the quote here it says, In the fourth book of Esdras, it's one of the apocryphal books that are present in the Catholic Bible, a work written by a Jew in the first century after Christ and widely read by Christians. This book represents Adam as the author of the fall of the human race, as having transmitted to all his posterity the permanent infirmity, the malignity, the bad seed of sin. The idea of original sin being passed down from generation to generation. And the Catholic Church bases some of that teaching on the apocryphal book of Esdras, which is interesting. They do use a scripture, though. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. And they, they do base this idea in part on scripture. But as we'll see momentarily, just on a part of the scripture. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Romans 5.12, we read, Therefore, just as through one man, this is talking about Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. But it mentions that death spread to all men. Why? Because of Adam's sin? No, it says death spread to all the world because all sinned. That's why death spread to all the world. That's why we're all worthy of the death penalty, because all have sinned. As first John or excuse me, as John six twenty three, John three twenty three talks about all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the Catholic Church will base some of this concept of original sin on Romans 5.12, but the scripture itself talks about all are guilty because all have sinned, not because Adam sinned. This idea of original sin undergirds the concept of human nature. But this false teaching of original sin opens up a can of worms doctrinally. Can you think about other implications of the teaching of original sin. If, if sin came from Adam and it's passed down from generation to generation, and, and so children are born with original sin as part of their nature, what kind of implications does that have for Jesus Christ, who was born of woman? Causes a problem, doesn't it? And the Catholic Church recognized that, that if Christ was born of woman, and she's a human being, original sin would have been passed down to him. So they had to come up with another teaching. That teaching is called the Immaculate Conception. Many people don't understand what the Immaculate Conception is. It's not Jesus Christ being immaculately conceived without a father. 
It's something else. Let me read to you again from the Catholic Encyclopedia, the article entitled The Immaculate Conception. It says, in the, con- in the Constitution in Felibus, days of 8 December 1854, Pius IX pronounced and defined that the Blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular privilege and grace granted by God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved exempt from all stain of original sin. I'll continue. The person is truly conceived when the soul is created and infused into the body. Mary was preserved exempt from all stain of original sin at the first moment of her animation when she first breathed. And sanctifying grace was given to her before sin could have taken effect in her soul. She was given a singular, a one-time privilege of being free from original sin through the grace of Christ. See, the Catholic Church has to give Mary an exemption from original sin, or else she would have passed that on to Jesus Christ And he would have been with sin from birth, yet the scripture tells us that he was without sin. There's another problem that original sin causes as well. If original sin would be passed down to children from their parents, and if the wages of sin are death, and of course worldly Christianity believes that those who have not repented of sin, what happens to them? They burn in hell for eternity then what do you do with infants who die and children who die before they repent? You have another doctrine, don't you, called infant baptism. So once we begin to open a can of worms with false doctrine, it forces a cascade of false doctrines that have to take place. Reading again from the Catholic Encyclopedia under the article on baptism, it says the fate of infants who die without baptism must be briefly considered here. The Catholic teaching is uncompromising on this point, that all who depart this life without baptism of water or blood or desire are perpetually excluded from the vision of God. This teaching is grounded, as we have seen, on scripture and tradition and the decrees of the church. Moreover, that those who die in original sin without ever having contracted any actual sin are deprived of the happiness of heaven that is stated explicitly in the confession of faith of the Eastern Emperor Michael Palaiologus, which has been proposed to him by Pope Clement IV in 1267. So they had to come up with another doctrine of infant baptism because of this concept of original sin, a false doctrine, a false teaching of original sin. The idea of original sin, again, is that children are born with sin in them. Some call it a sin nature. Some call it human nature and equate it with original sin, the idea that we're born with sin in us. The question is, is that what the Bible teaches? What does the Bible teach about not just original sin, but about this nature that we have in human nature? Let's go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. 
Genesis chapter 1. And let's see what God's creation looked like to begin with. And brethren, I know this is a review for you. But it's important as we begin talking about this topic from the scripture. Genesis 1, let's start reading in verse 27. Verse 26, we're told that God made man in his image after his likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. And we know this, we're created in the image of God. We look like God. Verse 28, God blessed them. So God created Adam and Eve, and he blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And let's skip down to verse 31. It says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God's looking back, particularly at this sixth day in which the land animals were made, in which man and woman were made. And he's looking back and saying, everything that I have made is very good. God would not have created a a sinful nature in Adam and Eve and looked back and said, this is very good, and I'm going to bless you, would he? Sinful nature is not good in God's eyes. So we we briefly see here that and can understand that God did not create Adam and Eve with a sinful nature. They didn't have sin in them. When they were created, it was good. It was very good. In fact, as we look at the other days of the week, the days of creation, God says what he created was good. On the sixth day, he says it was very good. It was very good. Adam and Eve were not created with God's Holy Spirit. They were not, nor were they created with a wicked, sinful nature. Genesis 3, if you flip over a page or two, in Genesis 3 we see... Eve and Adam being given a choice, don't we? What were the two choices in the garden that they could choose from? They could choose from the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in fact, God said, you may freely take of every tree in the garden, which would have included the tree of life. But they admitted when Satan foisted this idea of eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil on them, Adam and Eve admitted, no, of all the trees of the garden we can eat except this tree. They were given a choice. And what did they choose? Verse 7, Genesis 3, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves coverings. They made a choice, didn't they? They were tempted. Eve looked at the apple or whatever it was, that piece of fruit, and she said, oh, this is good. And she ate it and she gave it to her husband and he ate it. And they ate it knowing what? They ate it knowing that they were going against the will of God and going against the command of God when they ate from this fruit. They willfully 
made a decision to reject God's command, to rebel, if you will. I'm going to quote from a booklet uh, that the Worldwide Church of God published years ago entitled, Human Nature, Did God Create It? It's written by Herbert W. Armstrong. On page number six, regarding this situation in the garden, Mr. Armstrong commented, and that evil in them, this rebellion in them, that evil in them, came from Satan, not from God. They were not created with this evil nature. They were not created with an evil nature. Now, what about passing sin on to future generations? Can we do that? If if I sin in my life, and I, I have, and I sinned before my children were born, can I, do I pass that sin on and the consequences of my sin? Are they passed on to my children? Are they condemned because of my sin? What is God's view on this? What does the Bible have to say? Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24. <clears throat> God's pretty clear on this. Deuteronomy 24, and we know that the first five books of the Bible were apparently penned by Moses. But he was inspired, was he not? All scriptures inspired by God, we're told, and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. It's the Lord who gave these words to Moses. The Lord, the God of the Old Testament, is the one who became Jesus Christ, the one who is the same, yesterday, today, and forever. And in Deuteronomy 24, we learn what God's perspective is on sin and passing on the consequences of sin to the children, don't we? Deuteronomy 24 and verse 16, it says, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. It's pretty clear, isn't it? We don't pay the consequences of our parents' sin, God says. God doesn't hold children responsible for their parents' sin. We're held responsible for our own sin. And so this idea of original sin, passing down original sin from Adam to subsequent generations, or even passing down a sinful nature, a nature that has sin inherent in it, God doesn't have that happen because that would make children responsible for their parents' sin. Let's go back to Exodus 20 because we read another scripture that seems to contradict what we just read in Deuteronomy. And we, I think we all know one of the basic principles of Bible study is that not only does the Bible interpret itself, but the Bible doesn't contradict itself. If it did, you'd have Christ contradicting himself. You'd have God, who inspired the Bible, contradicting himself, and and that's not the case. Exodus 20, we see a concept that we need to then deconstruct based on what we just talked about, that God doesn't hold children responsible for the sins of their parents. Exodus 20, verse 4. Let's read about the second commandment here. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, 
the Lord, your God, the eternal here, am a jealous God. He's the one who later became Jesus Christ. Visiting the iniquity or visiting the sins of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. It says he visits the iniquity of the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate him. Does that verse contradict Deuteronomy 24:16 that we just read? God said he doesn't hold the children responsible for the sins of the parents. Yet this says he visits the iniquities, the sins of the fathers to the children to the third and fourth generation. What do we do? If somebody sat down next to you after services and asked you to explain that, how do you explain that? What do you do with that? Think about it. This has to do with character, doesn't it? And it has to do with habits. How many habits do our children pick up that we have? Bad habits. Are they being punished then if they act on those bad habits? Are they being punished because of our sins? You know, children who grow up in a family of smokers, cigarette smokers, are far more likely to smoke cigarettes than if they grow up in a family without cigarette smokers. If children who grow up in a family of cigarette smokers start smoking, are they being cursed because of the sins of their parents? Are they going to pay the penalty of their parents' sins? You have a similar thing that can happen with alcohol. Children who grow up in a family of alcoholics are at increased likelihood to be alcoholics themselves. In fact, they're even genetically predisposed. But does that mean they're going to be an alcoholic because their parents are? Absolutely not. They're at increased risk, but the decision is still theirs. If they choose a path of life, then they have sinned and they experience the consequences of those sins. But they're not forced in that direction. Think again, as we think about this concept... Here, this is talking about in um, Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. The, the command is talking about worshiping false gods, bowing down to a carved image. Children who grow up in a household where paganism is rampant aren't forced to be pagan, but they're much more likely to pick up those habits of paganism. This is why it talks about the iniquities of the parents are uh, fall on children to the third and fourth generation. Those bad habits are often picked up and carried on to the third and fourth generation. Just like he talks about a little further down, those who love God, who follow his ways, can pass on those habits as well. So understanding this concept is important. God does not condemn the children for the sins of the parents. He doesn't hold them responsible for their parents' sin. But they can be likely to pick up some of the sins of their parents because of the environments that they live in. This relates to the concept of original sin, and it relates to the misunderstanding many people have of human nature. The idea that God created us with a sinful nature, which is not the case. 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. And we're going to talk about that nature a little bit more in just a couple of minutes here. 
Paul talks about choice in 2 Corinthians 11. In verse 2, he makes the observation. Actually, let's start in verse 1. 2 Corinthians 11, 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Verse 3, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul is talking to a church congregation here in Corinth and he's saying, I'm worried that you could be deceived, that you could be pulled away from the truth. They didn't have an inherent deception in them. It's a deception that could come down the line because of Satan's deception, a deception that he gave to Adam and Eve and and was able to win them over with and a, a deception he could win us over with in God's church because we wind up, as Mr. Armstrong used to use the term, on Satan's wavelength. We hear him. Mr. Weston recently wrote... Uh, a, a editorial <clears throat> in the current Living Church News, January, February uh, 2020. The editorial is entitled, Are You Fooled by the Devil's Infomercial? And he talks about the deceptiveness of Satan and how he'll play on our, our human nature and on our, or using our spirit within us to do that. We know that Satan is the god of this age, don't we? And as the God of this age, he broadcasts as the prince of the power of the air. He broadcasts thoughts and ideas and emotions and feelings. Mr. Weston talked about that in his article. And and those can be deceptive. They can influence us. They can impact our nature, and they do over time. Let me quote again from this booklet Mr. Armstrong wrote, Human Nature Did God Create It? Page 8. He says, in a word... Selfishness, hostility, deceitfulness, wickedness, rebellion, etc., that we call human nature is actually Satan's nature. It is Satan's attitude and broadcasting it, surcharging the air with it. Satan actually now works in the unsuspecting all over the world today. That is how Satan deceives the whole world today. Revelation 12, 9. This prince of the power of the air, this god of this world, is the real source of what we have come to call human nature. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? That our sinful nature is not necessarily ours. It's Satan's nature. It's a nature that exposed to his deceptions, his society, his broadcasting over time, we actually begin to take on ourselves. We develop these characteristics and these character traits over time. And we take what is his nature, and over time we begin to make it our own. We adopt it. It's not something we're born with, but it's something that we develop over time because of exposure to his fiery darts and his deceptions. At its core, brethren, this way of thinking and acting this, this quote-unquote human way of thinking and acting, sinful way of human and acting, is inspired by Satan. Our human nature, when we think about it, exemplifies the get way of life, the self-focused way of life, doesn't it? 
It exemplifies Satan's way of life. And it starts developing in us as infants. I like the way that Mr. Armstrong used to explain it, and I see some old-timers in the room. And you'll remember, as I do, how Mr. Armstrong used to talk about a baby being born. And I remember thinking about this even as a child, as I looked around the, the church hall. And as, as a child, as I held little babies in my arms, somebody else's little baby, I had the priv- have had the privilege of having a couple of my own. And we've all done this, haven't we? Parents in the audience, grandparents in the audience, brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, uncles, aunts. We've held little ones, especially newborns or almost newborns in our arms. And when you look at them, you hold them in your arms and you look at them and you see this helpless little creature look up at you with big eyes. You realize this creature is not a sin-filled little evil being, is it? They're wonderful. They're sweet. They're precious. They cry, don't they? But when they're born, they don't cry out of rebellion. Why are they crying? And some of them really cry loud, don't they? They're crying to express themselves. They're trying to send a message, and this is the only way they can send it. They're trying to say, I'm hungry. I'm afraid. I'm uncomfortable, so please change my diaper. I'm cold. I'm laying on my arm, and it hurts. And I can't move because I'm too small to turn over. This is the message they send. There's not rebellion in their nature. As they grow a little bit more, you, you sense their cries change slightly. If we don't attend to their needs immediately, they may get louder. They may get angry because this wet, gooey diaper is still there and it's not going away and it's a miserable feeling. They're not rebelling. They're expressing a need, aren't they? And then we watch them get a little bit older. We watch them change and grow. And we begin to see attitudes that start to form, don't we? We we can give them a gift or give them something, and if we take it away, they can get angry about it. Is that a sin? If they get upset if you take something away? Not necessarily. But we do see a sinful nature begin to develop, don't we? Think about a two-year-old or a three-year-old. And we've all done this, haven't we? We've seen this happen. We tell them not to touch something. And they'll look at their parents or their grandparents, and they'll look at the item, and sometimes they'll grab it. And they understand they're not supposed to touch. That's direct rebellion at a certain point when they understand. Sometimes... They won't touch it, but they'll look at it and they'll put their finger up there and they'll look at you and they'll put their finger closer and they'll look at you and they'll put their finger right next to it. And they'll look back at their parents and smile. (laughs) They're not touching it. You see the attitude, don't you? Over time, they begin to develop that attitude. You know, when they're really little... Satan's able to broadcast to them. They don't have a lot of control. They don't have an understanding of where these thoughts and ideas and emotions are coming from. They just act on an impulse. But as they get older, they get more aware. 
they begin ingraining some of those ideas into themselves. And it's not long, and Satan doesn't have to inspire it anymore, does he? We just do wrong because that's what we do. It becomes habit. Satan's nature becomes or begins to become part of our nature. Does that make sense? We're not born that way. But over time, over exposure to Satan's way of life, we begin to develop those perspectives. It is Satan's nature, his character traits that we express. Let me quote one more time from Mr. Armstrong's booklet, page 11. He says, This nature has been acquired from Satan. It was not inherited from our parents. It was not created in us by God. That which has become habitual and therefore natural has become a nature within us. Let's go to one more scripture here. Galatians 5. Galatians 5, from a Bible memory perspective, we know is the chapter where we see the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, we know those fruits. The fruits of God's Spirit, and when we are exercising God's Holy Spirit, we should see more of these fruits. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, patience, meekness, faith, self-control. These are godly character traits. These are traits, if you will, of the nature of God. Yet, verses 19 through 21, let's look at those. Galatians 5, 19. Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh are evident. These are contrasted with the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And when we begin to think about these fruits, they really are elements of a different nature. Not God's nature, but Satan's nature. What are they? Verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. We could argue, yes, these are elements of human nature, but are they not really elements of Satan's nature? They're his character traits, traits of his character. That may be one of the reasons why Christ looked at the Pharisees at one point, John 8, 44, and he said, you are of your father, Satan, and his desires you want to do. Because over time, they had developed the nature of Satan in them. Over time, exposed to Satan's nature, if we're not fighting against it, we develop that nature in us, and we really become of our father, Satan the devil. So as we wind down here, brethren, as we prepare ourselves for the Passover, we need to remember the following. Human nature is not something that we're born with, and it's not something that God created in us. When you think about it, what did Christ do with little children at one point? Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it. He picked them up in his arms, and he looked at the disciples and the Jews that were around him, and he said, of such is the kingdom of God. 
We need to become as these little children. And maybe part of that has to do with the nature of these little children who haven't developed Satan's nature in them yet. He wants us to become like that again. What we call human nature is really Satan's nature in us when we think about it, when we're honest with it. It's his will. It's his perspectives. It's his attitudes. It's his emotions that develop in us over time and over exposure to his fiery darts and his society. And eventually, after that exposure, we begin to make his nature our own. We don't develop Satan's nature because we want it. I don't think too many people are out there saying, yeah, I want to be just like him. We develop it by default because we live in his world, in his society, because we're unaware of what he's doing. The fact that he's molding and fashioning us into his image as the God of this world. And eventually, again, we make that our own. Then we pick up those, that nature if we're not actively resisting it. Human nature, brethren, is not something that is just there. <clears throat> it's not something we just live with. It's not something that we just inherit from our parents. It's also something we need to be careful not to blame for our shortcomings. Oh, that's just my human nature. We can let ourselves off the hook far too easily as we think about that. And, and again, think about this in a, in a Passover preparation, self-examination way. Human nature is something we must repent of and change. And we talk about this when we counsel people for baptism. We've got to repent of that selfish, self-focused nature that we've developed over time. It's something we must actively resist by overcoming and by developing more of God's nature in us. We do this through repentance, we do it through baptism, we do it through the laying on of hands of the ministry and through constantly practicing God's way. Even after baptism, human nature is something we have to fight against, isn't it? We have to fight against this flesh, actively fight against the prince of the power of the air, otherwise we will redevelop this human nature again. We also must understand the truth about human nature so that we can pass that understanding on to our children and to our grandchildren. I'd like to end with a quote from Mr. Weston's article, Are You Fooled by Satan's Infomercial, in the January-February 2020 LCN. This is page 5. He says, Brethren, we must walk with eyes wide open and our minds on high alert to what Satan is selling. What is the current drumbeat around us? What philosophy or idea is in the world that it is pushing? What social trend do you see that wasn't there 20 or 30 years ago? Perhaps it is no coincidence that in the same letter in which Paul instructed us to put on the armor, the spiritual armor, he also instructed, quote, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. That's Ephesians 5.15. Brethren, with Passover approaching rapidly, we all need to keep working hard to examine ourselves and continue working to rid ourselves of human nature, which is really Satan's nature in us.